Hi, this is why Comico County Council member Josh Hastings. When I'm not out surfing, exploring the Eastern Shore's fantastic small towns, or eating delicious Eastern Shore foods, I'm listening to the absolute best source for Maryland policy and politics, the Conduit Street Podcast. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, we are recording remotely via Zoom this week. We do have a couple of guests. First of all, the generic question, how are you and the family holding up? I know you've been at home, not in the office. How are you holding up back there in Severna Park? Uh, Doing okay here. Everybody's relatively healthy and doing fine. Hey, last week, you and I were both feeling a little under the weather. I'm feeling better. How about you? I am feeling better, thankfully. I'm glad you're feeling better, too. Speaking of not feeling well, this week we're going to focus on COVID-19, and we heard this week from Governor Larry Hogan that Maryland on Friday, this week, September 4th, will begin to move into stage three of recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. According to the governor, Maryland's COVID-19 positivity rate has been under 5% for 70 consecutive days, under 4% for 26 consecutive days, and hospitalizations are down more than 77% from their peak. And to talk about what all of this means, including the role of county governments in moving to stage three, we have with us today Natasha Mayhew, who, among other policy areas, covers health policy for MAKO. And we are thrilled to welcome back Dr. Lawrence Polsky, Calvert County's health officer. Natasha, how are you today? Thanks for being with us. Doing good, Kevin. Trying to enjoy the sunny weather we finally have today. Finally, right? (laughs) And Dr. Polsky, thank you so much again for being with us. How is life treating you in Calvert County? Well, uh, Kevin, it's a pleasure to be back, and I will say that uh, things are really stressed. Uh, you know, I've had to cut back from my usual five naps a day. I'm now down to those, like two or three naps a day. <laughs> you don't strike me as a nap guy. I think I can speak for uh, all of my fellow health officers that my day starts by 6 a.m. Um, pretty much from the time I get up, there are at least emails that have rolled in overnight. And uh, last night I was uh, typing up something for our website to post on our social media and called it a night somewhere around 10 30. Uh, and that's, uh, that's been a typical day for really for the last six months. That, that's sort of like a, a perfect way to kick this off. I think there's a lot of people who might be listening to this podcast who are generally policy and politics people who have probably had their lifetime biggest exposure to the concept of a public health officer in the last few months. Um, The idea of, well, you need to pay attention to your local health department, listen to your health officer for the news on the ground. A lot of people are sort of scratching their heads saying, well, who who are these people, these health officers? Um, We we have this impression of you being someone who's going station to station doing public awareness. And, you know, I, I envision you out actually administering shots to people and all sorts of stuff. But I mean, for the, for the benefit of our listeners, like, can you can you kind of walk us through what life is like as a county health officer these days? And in Maryland, that's a pretty high-profile role in, in the situation we're in. It, it is a, a just a, a whirlwind. I truly have to remind myself what day of the week it is uh, because everything is just, uh, as I say to myself on a regular basis, every day is just an adventure. 
Um, and you mentioned giving shots. So one of the things that we're, we're are prepping for are vaccinations, uh, both flu vaccines, which we're very, very hopeful we'll see a significant increase in the number of people, number, number of Marylanders uh, willing to get a flu vaccine this year. Typically, a little less than 40% of adults in Maryland get flu vaccine. It may have been blurred uh, since back in the winter, but in countries where flu season overlapped uh, COVID, uh, they saw that at least 20% of people were co-infected. And um, flu itself uh, can be essentially life-threatening infection for some people. You add that in addition to the body trying to fight off COVID, and you can get a sense of uh, how catastrophic that can be. Um, and then we're also starting to do some early planning for whenever we will have effective COVID vaccines. So that's uh, one small snapshot. For many of the health departments, we do routine clinical care. Uh, one of the concerns, and we'll probably touch on schools as we go through our discussion, but one of our concerns uh, in the spring when all the schools shut down were all the 15, 16, 17-year-olds who were home, many of whom were unattended. And um, even though their normal learning routine uh, was uh, compromised significantly, uh, sexual activity doesn't stop. And in some cases, you know, we were concerned that it might actually heighten. So we um, counsel and dispense contraception. And one of the things that was very important to us is that we did not see uh, a group of teenage girls ending up dropping out of school uh, because of unintended pregnancies. So running clinics. Uh, we run uh, at our health department behavioral health clinics. Uh, we're also very concerned about increases in stress levels uh, due to people being bottled up at home, people losing work, uh, all sorts of financial pressures, combinations of everything from domestic violence to depression and anxiety disorders to substance uh, use problems. And so it was incredibly important to us that we maintain services, some of which were remote uh, through telehealth, uh, but there are people who don't have access. And again, we'll probably touch on that with schools. There's some people who don't have uh, access through telemedicine. So we also um, had in-person services kept open. We are constantly in touch with our county government partners as they've dealt with just a host of issues. Our schools, uh, which in some ways is kind of distinctive of county government, and certainly there's some overlap, but I don't know how many scores of conversations I've had with our county school system through the spring, through the summer, and now into the fall uh, in terms of planning. And uh, we do direct testing. Uh, most of our, our health departments do direct testing for COVID. So uh, we run our VEEP site, most but not all counties have. Uh, that's the vehicle emissions test sites where people can schedule if their uh, family doctor does not provide testing. And, uh, and that is being changed. Uh, the state is shutting down those vehicle emission sites. So we're going through a, a whole big logistical changeover. And then unpredictable changes through governor's orders that uh, oftentimes require us to very, very quickly respond. And it's critically important for a lot of businesses all across the state that local health departments have guidance out quickly 
Um, in some cases, we need to reinspect, especially for restaurants, uh, if it impacts the way that they do things. So I'm just touching on a few of the issues that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. Contact tracing, I guess, is another really biggie um, that we are uh, very, very uh, instrumental uh, in, in, uh, in, in each county across the state. My quick reaction is that list of things that our local health departments are taking on as part of this pandemic reaction is potentially overwhelming in itself, and that's layered on top of existing responsibilities to just maintain and track and educate and support populace on public health issues anyway. So it's not like other, you know, it's not like the opioid crisis has just gone away and communicable diseases and, you know, you know, citizen education and so forth. All those things are still there with these new responsibilities layered on top. It's, um, I can see why you're making jokes about naps. You probably are in need of one. <laughs> uh, I haven't had a day off since uh, President's Day weekend. It took a long weekend. That's the, yeah, the last day I've had off. And all of our staff, I, you know, I can't be more proud and, and I, this is uh, an ongoing frustration for me that, you know, quote unquote, government workers uh, get a really bad rap. Uh, and, and my staff uh, has stepped up in so many ways. Um, they're the ones out there when people come in for COVID testing. They're the ones out there in PPE on 90 some degree days, hour after hour, making sure that people can get testing done nurses who are working weekends because it's a seven day uh seven day a week operation do contact tracing people have not complained um they're stressed and and they're a bit frazzled but but they're stepping up um, and you mentioned uh, for behavioral health uh our uh all of our therapists and nurse practitioners and then it's you know it's the invisible people the receptionists the people who deal with grants to make sure that we can keep our programs going, you know, all of them um, have really just stepped up and, and made sure that, that we can provide services to our communities that, that we really need to provide. Kind of along those notes, I mean, you know, we're, we see a lot of reports nationally about the stress and the turnover among health officers or also um, health department staff. And um, just with the difficulties of managing different systems that don't necessarily connect to state or federal systems, how have um, the departments, you and your fellow officers, been coping with those sorts of challenges? IT problems are part of the answer to that question. Um, Something that we've known uh, have been deficient for a long time. And in many instances, IT systems we use uh, go back to the 80s and 90s. And they're, um, they're cumbersome, they're frustrating to use. Um, oftentimes we have to uh, enter data in two, three different systems manually. And those are the kind of things that take investment, uh, whether it's on, on part of the administration or on part of the legislature. And you know, there is that reality that uh, investing in things like that are, that are not until we hit a crisis like this. Um, that, that is not seen as, oh, we can put that off till next year. Oh, we can put that off till next year. And then we realize that 25 years have gone by and we're still using the same system, which is not capable. So uh, I'm hoping that one of the things that comes out of this, although I'm not holding my breath, I'm hoping that one of the things that comes out of this is, is finally a realization that the infrastructure uh, within which public health operates uh, needs a dramatic uh, uh, updating um, and it doesn't just fall by the wayside as we worry about things that are also important, like 
funding education, and I realize that there will be um, budget issues, not only this year, but probably for at least a year or two beyond. Um, but, um, you know, but I'm hoping, again, that, that the decision makers, the policymakers who help control the purse strings um, understand that just like if we were running a private company, and I look at my health department as if I was still in private practice, and I'm running this as efficiently as I can from a business perspective. Part of that is you have to invest in your company. Um, and that has one of the things that's been sorely lacking uh, across the state as a whole. So again, I'm hoping that there will be that more of that business mindset that you need to invest in order to have a well-functioning organization when you really need them. And Dr. Polsky, I think that's a great point. And I think the COVID-19 pandemic has demonstrated the issues with some of our technology, whether it be for kids going back to school and remote learning, people trying to work from home, telemedicine, telehealth, not having access to high-speed internet, not having the infrastructure in place has certainly created challenges in all of those areas. And you mentioned the health departments having to scramble sometimes to put into effect new orders from the state, from the governor. And let's talk about stage three. It feels like we're at a break point here. Schools are starting off their school year. The governor has just announced, as we mentioned earlier, a plan to move into Maryland's phase three of reopening. We'd like to talk through some of that with you. So what is phase three going to look like and feel like for residents in Calvert County, where you are? And let's talk about public venues, retail centers, movie theaters. Are we still doing masks? Is the mask mandate still in place? Are we still staying six feet apart? I mean, what are things going to look like in Calvert County and in other counties across the state? The phase three announcement is, I would say it is rhetoric. We are not in phase three. So initially the, the concept of phase three was that infection rates were so low that you could have mass gatherings again, that when the Ravens play that 60 some thousand people could be in the stadium um, and that you could have you know, other types of large gatherings with minimal risk of uh, transmission of the virus. Even from relatively early on where church congregations were not supposed to uh, get together until phase two, um, that suddenly appeared when we were still in phase one. And uh, there's just been a tremendous blurring. So um, I, I've encouraged people in Calvert to ignore the terminology, the rhetoric of phase this or phase that. What we really should be looking at is what are we safely able to do at this point? So we can say that we're in phase three, but restaurants are still limited on their capacity. Absolutely nothing changed in terms of restaurant operations when we moved from supposed phase two to phase three. We all know that there's not a single public school system that uh, is having in-person learning other than maybe a very, very small uh, cohort of students coming into the buildings. And we still have significant, not nearly as uh, worrisome, but we still have significant levels of virus transmission going all through the state. And I think it's, it's worth mentioning that although almost all the counties are doing better in terms of the uh, amount of virus transmission, uh, certainly compared to a month or two ago, and uh, we're not seeing the number of hospitalizations and deaths that we were seeing in late spring, um, if you take a look at Worcester County, their um, positivity rates, so the percentage of tests that uh, people are diagnosed with COVID as opposed to having negative tests is more than double the state average right now. And uh, I don't think anyone can say that that is coincidental. So that, that is uh, uh, great evidence of what happens when you have large numbers of people congregating 
uh, in lots of areas. And, and I will say that the, I think the latest number was 7.6% uh, positivity, that that's an undercount because the way that we've decided to attribute infections is by people's uh, county of residence. So if someone from Calvert or someone from Queen Anne's or pick your county, uh, they go to Ocean City, uh, they get in, infected there, uh, whether they get tested in Worcester or whether they get tested when they come back to their home county, that infection is then attributed to their home county. It's not attributed to where they actually picked it up. So again, the 7.6 is, is uh, an underestimation of the uh, prevalence of, of COVID uh, in, in that section of the state right now. And, and I think that, that that should be an important reminder to all of us that um, as we continue to open things up uh, and the more people are mingling, and especially as we start moving into cooler weather where we know viruses like coronavirus tend to uh, propagate more, um, that uh, we, we have to be careful. We have to be really mindful. And so on that note, I mean, moving into to phase three, even though, you know, I agree with you that that seems like rhetoric at this point, it's about what we can do safely. That doesn't mean that people don't need to wear masks, correct? Especially when they're congregating around others or they're in indoor spaces, the mask mandate is still in place, correct? And also on that note, I, I want to be clear, counties still have the ability to go above and beyond what the state is saying is phase three. Is that correct, Dr. Polsky? Kevin, you're correct on, on all of that. Um, but um, as far as county discretion, certainly we've seen you know, battles uh, in, in a number of respects. Uh, I don't know if we'll touch on youth sports, but um, certainly we've seen that uh, start to play itself out over the last week or two when counties try to restrict and, and, and how things go. Uh, in terms of masks, I, it, it, that is almost certainly one of the, the big drivers that has allowed us as a state to lower our infection rates. I know that when when I'm out and about in Southern Maryland, that um, almost everyone uh, has a mask on uh, when they're out in public. And I think it's, it's that type of personal responsibility, especially as we start moving toward flu season, that uh, people need to, to continue. So I'm, I'm hoping that the mask requirement will continue at minimum uh, until, well, one of two things happen. Either we clear flu season uh, or we have an ample supply of effective vaccine for COVID, which I don't anticipate that will happen. Probably at the earliest would be April or May of this coming year. And just to clarify that, you're saying that would be earliest April or May for the vaccine or for the clearing of flu season or kind of both? <laughs> well, so, yeah. So, so flu, season, uh, flu season typically starts to wind down around March. And uh, it depends because in, sometimes, and, and last year we saw this, where there was one strain that was predominant, and uh, and that started to wane around mid to late February. But then there was a second strain that popped up uh, around late January, and then persisted a bit longer into March and a little bit into April. So typically, flu season winds down around March. And so I, I had two qualifiers for the vaccine. One was effective and adequate supply of the vaccine. So it's possible. Uh, but uh, at this point, there's no way to know. Uh, it's possible that uh, there may be one or more effective vaccines by January or February, but the idea that we would have 100, 200 million doses uh, by January or February is almost unthinkable. Uh, so I, I think it's going to be at least April or May until we have, you know, number one, that we know that one or more vaccines will work effectively, and then two, that there is enough supply manufactured 
that uh, for everyone who um, at that point wants to get vaccinated will have access to the vaccine. It's one thing to pull a rabbit out of a hat, but to try and pull 200 million of them out of a hat is maybe another dimension to the, the challenge of warp speeding this whole thing. That is absolutely true. Dr. Polsky, when it comes to movie theaters and you know, concert music venues. I know that one of the big concerns with music venues has been people typically like to sing along, right? If you're seeing your favorite band or a show, it's hard to think that people will not remove their mask and sing along. And that introduces those droplets into the air, right? And that's how this virus spreads. When it comes to movie theaters and music venues, I mean, I've seen that phase three would mean that, you know, some of these music venues could open up at 50% capacity if they're outside, a little bit less inside. What are your thoughts on that? Is it too soon in your mind to start opening these venues up? It seems like it's going to be very difficult to restrict people to keep their mask on within a music venue or even a movie theater for that, for that much. I do not understand the logic behind allowing movie theaters to open. Um, it's, it's an extremely small uh, percentage of the, economy. I, I tried to quickly figure out about how many movie screens we have in the state. Uh, I couldn't find direct answers for Maryland, but kind of extrapolated from nationally. So we probably have somewhere in the ballpark of eight to 900 movie screens uh, in the state. Uh, you're putting in uh, potentially 100 people per, uh, per room where each screen is for two plus hours at a time. Uh, it's just uh, you know, it's, it's hard, if not impossible, to imagine that we won't have uh, transmission of virus that's generated out of movie theaters. And, you know, it's putting those people at risk. Uh, but um, just as importantly, because I hear the, well, personal responsibility, if you don't want to expose yourself, then don't go. But the reality is that then those people in turn will be in close contact with, with household members, will be in close contact with coworkers, and so there's potential for spillover effects uh, in all the other sectors of the economy uh, with coworkers ending up getting infected, particularly now that you know, it's very clear that asymptomatic people can spread the virus. So if I go to the movies, I pick it up, I don't feel sick, I go to work, you know, uh, and over the next week, I could expose you know, dozens of other people. Um, so I, again, I, I, I don't understand the push for movie theaters. And I've made recommendations locally uh, that, that, uh, that people should avoid. They should continue at least again until those, those you know, either uh, the vi virus prevalence is close to zero or we have an effective vaccine that's available for everyone. Um, that movie theaters are just one of those things that, you know, will put a pause and people will continue to watch movies at home. Uh, in terms of, of concerts, yeah, uh, Kevin, you bring up a, a, a critical point that, uh, and, and to a, a lesser degree for religious services, and we've had conversations across our county um, going back to the spring, that when people are singing or chanting or anything where they're raising their voice significantly, we know through very good studies that the range at which uh, respiratory droplets and the potential for aerosol being created uh, goes up dramatically. It's not doubling, but it goes up much higher. And, and so, uh, you know, those are environments that will, uh, it's, a, it's not a question of if you'll see more, uh, uh, more infection transmission. It's a question of, of, of how much. And so, uh, it, it's my hope that there will be discretion. Uh, one thing that did come out in the latest governor's order um, is a cap on uh, outdoor events that uh, have live performances 
uh, or movies. And so that actually, I think to me, it's a bit of a, actually a regression because previously, although live performance was fuzzy, there, there was no um, limitation placed on gatherings of people at outdoor events. So um, I think maybe that's a sign that there's a realization that you can't just have unlimited numbers of people coming together for those types of events. So Dr. Polsky, it sounds to me the bottom line here, regardless of what we're calling phases or, or whatnot, until we have a, a vaccine and until that vaccine is readily available, until the transmission mates are near zero, we still need to wear masks and we still need to social distance. So throw all the other rhetoric out the window. That seems to be the bottom line here when we're talking about phases and how we're moving forward, et cetera. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's also critically important that, you know, for anyone who has a household member who has any type of medical condition that leaves them more vulnerable, uh, making sure that, that they as an individual are avoiding areas that um, have higher likelihood of uh, putting them at risk for virus is, is important. And, and for people to keep in mind that, you know, they may have coworkers that have underlying medical conditions that um, their coworkers for various reasons have just never made public. And so, you know, everyone that we come in contact, we should, we should really, you know, have a, a, a humbling degree of respect. We need to make sure that we're not putting others at risk as we go through this. And, and I realize, you know, it's not lost on me uh, how um, frustrating to put it mildly, but um, constraining. Um, and for some people, um, you know, it's really taking an emotional toll uh, as, as far as the limitations that have been put in their lives. But, uh, but these are temporary. And the expectation, I think the reasonable expectation is that somewhere in the six to nine month range from now, we'll start to really see tangible light at the end of the tunnel. And so it's a matter of how we continue to modify our day-to-day activities uh, to keep ourselves, our family members, um, people who we work with or in other ways that are close to us um, as safe as reasonably possible. All right, so we're going to go ahead and leave it there for now. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about how COVID-19 is impacting schools, remote learning, in-person learning. We'll also talk about some data and how data is being interpreted, all that and more after the break. This is John Frenet with Ion Annapolis to let you know about our daily news brief podcast, If you want to keep up on Annapolis area local news, local weather, and local events, check us out. We produce episodes every Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and deliver them right to your phone or computer for free. You can also catch them on our Facebook page, All Annapolis, or under the podcast category at ionannapolis.net. You can even ask Alexa to play it for you. So if you want to keep up to speed on Mayor Buckley, County Executive Pittman, Navy football, maybe you're looking for a weekend thing to do, or if you just want to catch the hyper-local weather, give a listen to the Ion Annapolis Daily News Brief. We'll see you tomorrow morning. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Dr. Larry Polsky, Natasha Mayhew, and Michael Sanderson. Dr. Polsky, the last few weeks, we've heard a lot of talk about schools, and the governor now seems to be applying some pressure to get students more face-to-face learning. You mentioned earlier all 24 jurisdictions are at least starting with remote learning, but the governor would like to see in-person learning soon, apparently. Do you have any thoughts on that? 
and what that would mean for kids and the risk, not only for children, but also for teachers and staff in schools. I think it's extremely important that students are able to get back to school in part because we know, and it's oftentimes um, students who are already most at risk academically, uh, but there are students who are just not going to have sufficient access through uh, virtual technology. Uh, I had a, a patient in uh, earlier this morning, I do a little bit of uh, still direct uh, patient care. Uh, she's a, a single working mom. Uh, she has a, a child in middle school and a preschooler with a learning disability. And uh, she lives in an area of our county that does not have internet access and cell phone access in most of those areas is also hit and miss. So she did get a hotspot uh, from the school system, but because her cell phone access is not great, uh, the hotspot doesn't work all that well. She does have an option of taking her children in to the schools and to the cafeterias, uh, but she would need to independently arrange for transport of her children to two different schools. As I mentioned, she's a working mom, and it, it's just not feasible. Um, and and there are other you know, situations all across that, that there are children who are being disadvantaged in that way. Uh, and it, on a broader level, uh, you know, it, school is not just about learning academics. Uh, there is a lot that goes on to our ability as social beings and then emotionally when we're cut off from our peers. And, uh, and, and I think that we all know that this has played out in various ways that, that um, you know, we, we know that even without this kind of situation, that uh, with social media, uh, we've seen dramatic increases in anxiety rates among adolescents and pre-adolescents. Uh, we know that for middle school girls in particular, that cyberbullying is um, a dangerous issue. And, uh, and when children are cut off from in-person contact to uh, others, friends who provide that sort of support, it leaves them more vulnerable. So in lots of ways, and we could go on uh, other things as well, including um, children that don't have reliable, nutritious food at home, and sometimes their only good meals for the day are in schools, and, and children who live in households where there's abuse, and now their teachers can't keep an eye on them in the way that they could when they were coming in person. There's just, just a, you know, a whole litany of, of things that are important uh, that we're losing out on when children don't have access to being in school. On the other hand, you know, obviously we cannot ignore the potential uh, for disease transmission. I'm hoping that uh, the friction between um, Annapolis and the individual school systems will settle down a little bit. I, I don't see that as being constructive. And I'm hoping that there will be more. Our, you know, our goal is to get kids back in school. How do we safeguard teachers and staff uh, who are more likely than the students to have potential underlying conditions. Um, you know, one option would be to have um, and split, uh, split students into two cohorts. Uh, I'm not going to go through a whole big thing because we don't have time for that, but you know, you, you've decreased your density uh, in half, so you can space students much more. They would have masks on. It also allows a buffer zone between the students and the teachers because you don't have nearly as many uh, students in the classroom. For teachers that have 
truly um, concerning underlying health conditions, they should not be in school. Uh, but that's a perfect opportunity to have a screen in the classroom where the teacher can be remote. You can have a teacher's aide in the classroom, especially for younger age children to help them. And, and so there, I, I think that there are uh, hybrid models that could be uh, implemented. Otherwise, if we're waiting for vaccines, and we're waiting for the, the prevalence rates to go down to close to zero. Um, you know, I, I don't know that there's a path to get kids back into school this year, or at least not before the last month or so of the year. So again, you know, my hope at this point is that, is that there is more constructive dialogue uh, between state and local level, because uh, you know, there are kids that really, really need to get back to school. So what, I mean, as a, as a non-public health person, I, I, th- I think what I'm hearing is this is a tricky balance, right? There are, there are important reasons to get kids back into a more social learning setting uh, for a variety of reasons, and I think you laid them out really well, but there are health consequences of doing so. This is a tough one to get right, and it, it requires balancing on both sides. You're absolutely correct, Michael. And, but it's, that's not an impossible task. You know, I'm, just, I'm hoping all across the state that at local school boards, school administrations, that you know, they're continuing to, it's not a question of if, it's a question of how do we do this in a way that is reasonably safe. And, and I think we also need to keep in mind that not having kids in school doesn't take away risks. And I, I do worry uh, about kids who, you know, their parents need to go to work or there's no food on the table and they can't pay their rent. So who's watching those kids during the day? And, and what potential problems can happen there? How many kids are being put into unregulated quasi-daycares that'll charge whatever, you know, a week uh, for parents that either can't find adequate daycare or can't afford uh, the prices for standard daycare? So, you know, there are real health consequences, uh, not to mention, you know, at those types of settings, there are potential incubators for virus. And what you're doing is you're shifting risk away from school staff, but you're putting that risk, and this gets to, you know, equity issues, that uh, for people who are going to run these sort of underground daycares, they're going to be predominantly women, and they're going to be predominantly low income. Um, and so you've, you've moved risk out of a very structured environment into completely unstructured, unregulated environments that, again, place people who are of lower income at uh, shouldering the, the greatest burden of, of health consequence. So um, it's not just a question of what goes on in the schools. Uh, when you're not providing those services there, there are going to be counterbalancing risks out in the community. And so, again, I, I hope that everyone is taking all these things into account and finding ways that, again, we can reasonably safeguard teachers and school staff there are going to be a few, it's going to be a small percentage, but there are going to be a few kids who really, from, for health reasons, should not be in school this year. But um, if, if 90-some percent of the kids are back in school, whether it's in split weeks or however they do it, you also have more resources that can be devoted to that smaller percentage of students who should not be there. Following along on the conversation uh, about risk that you've uh, discussed, in some places, not necessarily Maryland, but people talk about herd immunity as a strategy for kind of low, I, I guess, in a way of lowering risk or that, you know, once it spreads, um, everyone will get some sort of immunity and it'll stop um, exposure and spread. And so any thoughts there on, you know, the, the idea of herd immunity as um, a tactic? 
Natasha, currently the best estimates uh, that we have, and I, I think they're reasonably good estimates, uh, th they're based on more widespread antibody testing. And that shows that likely the percentage of the population in Maryland uh, that's been infected to this point is, is somewhere in the 10 to 12% range. Experts who know more than me ab about in, uh, infectious disease epidemiology uh, have been estimating that you would need uh, about 50 to 60% of the population uh, to have been infected uh, prior to the point where you would have reliable herd immunity. And you know, so you know, we all know that um, hoping that uh, you know, four to five times more people get infected than have, has already happened uh, is not a good strategy to employ. Uh, and, you know, that certainly uh, even a fraction of that would overwhelm the hospitals and, and we'd be a mess. So what we're really looking at is uh, waiting for those vaccines to be developed. And in the meantime, as, as we've been talking about through the discussion, that uh, people continue to adapt their day-to-day -day activities in a way that is going to minimize the potential that they get infected and potentially then transmit the virus to others. Kind of following up on that, in regards to testing, you know, there's been a lot in recent weeks about who should get tested and whether there's changes on the testing guidelines. And you, you mentioned antibodies. So there are, um, you know, as I understand it, different types of tests that are provided, some a bit more rapid, but maybe not as reliable. Um, and then others that we've seen in recent weeks have had significant backlogs in getting test results. Can you help just talk through some of the types of testing out there and you know, the, uh, what sort of testing should be done or not? This continues to get more and more complicated. Uh, it seems like every month or two that we move along. Uh, so just uh, quickly for antibody, Antibody uh, testing is not appropriate for individuals to decide if they have been infected or not. Um, antibody testing, uh, all that says is that at some point in the past that that individual was infected with a coronavirus of some sort. Uh, and that does not necessarily mean COVID-19. Uh, and, and so uh, as an individual, if I would get tested and, and, and it came back positive for me, I don't know if I was exposed to a different type of coronavirus, uh, at some, and that could even be a couple of years ago, uh, again, because it would be a different strain, uh, or it was COVID, much less when I got exposed. So it wouldn't tell me if I was not feeling well today and I got an antibody test and it came back positive, I, I don't know if I had COVID or some other back in March or last year or whether I was currently affected. So that is strictly for population monitoring. They can estimate what percentage of people likely have been infected by COVID-19 versus other types of viruses, but it is not appropriate for an individual to make a decision about their health. The antigen testing, which is the other category, then gets now split into two categories. One is the standard send it off to a lab, which is what we've been doing since back when we first started with our uh, first cases in Maryland back in March. Uh, that is PCR testing. I'm not going to get into all the, you know, spelling things out and whatever isn't going to help most people. Um, the PCR testing is the what is considered to be the gold standard of testing. And then the other type of antigen testing is the uh, rapid tests. Those are, and, and again, I don't want to get too complicated. Um, so the PCR testing is 
uses material from the RNA. Uh, coronavirus doesn't have DNA uh, from the R. So the genetic material. Um, most, but not all, of the rapid tests use proteins on the surface of the virus. Um, there is one rapid test that actually uses uh, PCR technology, but that is not very accessible. So probably at least nine out of 10 people who are listening, if they get a rapid test, they are, uh, they're checking for protein. Um, so the sensitivity of that is not quite as good as with PCR testing. So you'll hear you know, discussion about whether it's appropriate to use that or not. Um, I, I would say that in a quick answer uh, that I am perfectly comfortable with rapid testing. For most people, uh, finding out fast is advantageous uh, in a number of ways. Uh, so if I go for a rapid test and it comes back positive, it's almost certain that it's a true positive test. I know immediately that I need to isolate myself. I'm going to take that much more seriously rather than just a test that may be pending for anywhere from uh, a day or two to as much as a week or more for the lab sendouts. And it also allows contact tracing to begin that same day. Uh, so in, in our county, uh, we have two places that are doing uh, rapid tests. They update us every day uh, on the positive results, and then we can immediately start that afternoon or that evening to do contact tracing. Uh, and every delay, every day of delay with contact tracing increases the potential for spread across the community. The downside is, as I mentioned, it's not quite as sensitive to do those, those tests. Uh, and there is, I think, legitimate controversy within the medical and public health fields. Those are slightly different things, but you can think of it as clustered. Uh, so medical or the, the doctors, nurse practitioners taking care of you, the public health people are looking more community-wide. There's legitimate debate uh, as to if someone has a negative rapid, should that be sent out then? for further testing. I'm not going to get into all that. Uh, there's no definitive answer. Um, but I would say that for someone who is uh, clearly symptomatic or somebody who lives in the same household with someone who tested positive, if their rapid test comes back negative, I think those are circumstances that definitely it should be sent for confirmation out to the lab uh, to um, have a higher degree of sensitivity to make sure. So hopefully that answered the question without getting into too much technical. Dr. Polsky, you've mentioned something a couple of times, and I want to kind of go off our script a little bit and ask what's kind of a personal question, but it might be useful. Um, you've talked about contact tracing as one of, the, one of the functions that local health professionals are engaging in, sometimes working with private partners, and you just mentioned it again as part of individual testing, being able to do contact tracing when we have a confirmed positive test. So this is, as I understand it, is the process of when there's a confirmed positive, we do our best to find out who that person, where they've gone, the people they've interacted with, and try and do some informational reach out to see if we can learn, okay, is there another pocket of people we ought to be protecting or reaching out to and, and that sort of thing. So please fill in the gaps there. But my specific question is, I'm a... I'm a citizen who I have become used to ignoring phone calls that aren't from a familiar number. I just assume it's someone who's going to try and help me refine my mortgage or sell me a magic pill or something. And so I'm in the habit of ignoring an awful lot of phone calls. And I assume if someone I've come in contact with has a positive test and a contact tracer is trying to reach me, 
Am I going to miss that call if I continue that behavior? What should I be doing as a responsible team player here? Michael, you're right that this is, you know, we knew it was going to be a problem from the beginning, that at least in, in our county. And I look at, I see some of the stats from other counties across the state. And, and, and for the most, the vast majority of people are answering, uh, responding. Um, I'll get into a second layer that becomes more problematic. But um, I think in most counties, we're able to establish contact with about 80 to 90% of people who test positive. So for, for people who are listening to our podcast, you know, the most important things to, to know are that if you get tested uh, and it turns up positive, that you will get a call from a contact tracer. So that should be an expected call. Uh, generally, nowadays, turnaround time for most of the labs is two to three days. So you're probably going to hear back within a few days, uh, although um, delays are unpredictable. So there could be as much as a week lag uh, before they would get a call. Uh, but, you know, to be on the lookout. So even if they are realistically not going to answer the call, that they have their voice mailbox set up, uh, and so if a contact tracer leaves a message, you know, I'm calling from the, you know, Talbot County uh, Health Department, um, um, can you please call me back, uh, that at least they would listen to their voicemail and then, and then call back. Um, so these are not going to be kind of out of the blue calls. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, um, they're only, the only people getting called are the people going in getting tested. So, again, those people should, should be on the lookout. The bigger issue we've actually had is people's willingness to talk about uh, others that they've been in contact with. And that has been a real challenge. So uh, people, for the most part, have been willing to talk about their own circumstances. But when it comes to, you know, can you please uh, you know, provide the names and the contact information of others, um, that um, has not gone very well. Uh, some many people will say, well, I know who it is now that you've talked to me and I will reach out to them directly, which is okay. Uh, but um, for, for those people who they've been in contact with, they, they don't have the benefit of, of talking. At our health department, uh, our contact tracers are our nurses. And so that um, when they reach out to a contact, they can provide good health information so that people can make sure they're taking proper care of themselves uh, what does it mean, you know, during the next 14 days, things you should and shouldn't be doing? And all that is lost when you rely on the person with the infection then reaching out. The hope or the plea that we have for people is not so much that they're answering the phone, which for the most part they are, but they're more willing uh, to share with us. Uh, and we keep things discreet. Um, we are not you know, trying to, you know, quote, unquote, out anybody. Uh, the only information we share is information that is critical uh, for the health of the people who may now be at risk uh, because they were in close contact across close proximity uh, with a person with, with an infection. Thank you. That's really helpful. I appreciate it. So Dr. Polsky, you know, reading about the lingering effects, you know, whether it be respiratory, neurological, that are occurring in people who have had COVID-19 and ostensibly recovered without being hospitalized, how are we supposed to think about those cases? They didn't turn into critical care, seem to be behind us, but they might still have a health consequence down the line. What are your thoughts there? How should we be thinking about this and, and handling this moving forward? This has been just one of those black boxes that's gone along with this infection. It's, it's um, the consequences of COVID-19 infections are, are 
really different than any other virus that we've ever had to deal with before. Uh, and we're still learning. Certainly, we know a lot more than we did uh, back in the spring. And, and I think that the fatality rates reflect that. It's in part because less people are getting infected, uh, but it's also in part because uh, people who have gotten significantly ill, uh, the doctors at least are uh, better able to anticipate and they now at least have, have some treatments that are, are more effective. Uh, but Kevin, as you mentioned, the treatments we have are far from adequate. And so uh, part of the problem is that although there are certain risk factors that have been clearly identified, including significant obesity, diabetes, chronic hypertension, uh, underlying kidney uh, disease, uh, and some others, that there are people who, as far as we know, uh, previously were healthy. And um, I think the, the biggest issue there has been this really um, kind of unprecedented uh, instance of blood clots that, that form in a certain percentage of people who get infected. And, um, and that's been a bit of a wild card. So that's uh, oftentimes where we see people who don't have clear underlying uh, health problems, sometimes people in their 20s and 30s, uh, that they're um, immune system overreacts and their clotting mechanisms, which are always a delicate balance in our bodies, um, uh, gets uh, uh, kind of flipped and we just start producing or the, uh, some people start producing blood clots uh, all over. So uh, those lead, potentially lead to strokes. Um, they lead to permanent damage of the lungs, uh, permanent damage in the kidneys. Uh, and it, this is going to be one of those retrospective, uh, in all likelihood, again, assuming that we do have a vaccine uh, within this next next year, uh, as far as understanding what the consequences are. Uh, we have no idea for people who have had um, relatively acute injuries, let's say um, significant uh, impairment to their kidney function or some sort of neurologic uh, problem, uh, a, a year or two from now, will they have eventually recovered? And if not, uh, how much permanent loss that they're going to have? Uh, so I, I think this just, again, underscores that um, this is not just the flu, uh, and it's not just the anything that we've dealt with before. Um, and, and again, impressing upon people that, you know, it's great to have testing, it's great to have contact tracing, but, you know, the what is really, really going to be at the core of keeping infection rates low is that people um, continue to behave in ways that are going to minimize their risk of contracting the virus. Mm. I guess to connect a couple of the dots here, a couple of minutes ago in musing about this notion of herd immunity, you, I think, punctuated your comments by saying, the idea of moving in the direction of having four or five times as many people get exposed to and contract this illness seems like a really bad idea. I'm thinking of those words as I hear you talking about the notion of herd immunity as a policy strategy. I don't think anybody in here in the free state is talking about herd immunity, but in, you know, you, you hear Florida and so forth, some, some places that are having big numbers and at some point they say, well, we can just open our economy if we, uh, if we embrace the idea of let's get everybody sick, we'll treat it like chickenpox, then it'll all be behind us. When you're talking about people having these long-term consequences fr from what even, even what seem like mild cases of COVID, 
that makes me even more persuaded that that strategy um, is weak on its merits. Am I drawing the right inference from the things you're saying? Michael, you absolutely are. Uh, I think the the, med, the fancy medical term we have for, depending on uh, herd immunity, is crazy talk, because that is just, um, you know, just uh, again, you know, I, I think back uh, about three, four months ago, the, the stress on our hospital system. You know, we, we've touched on the direct effects of the virus on people. We have not really talked about the indirect effects. So if you uh, if you're having a heart attack. Uh, and the ambulance can't get to you because it uh, has now picked up someone who's COVID positive, and now they have to go through some disinfection process. Or you roll into the ER with an appendix that's about to rupture, but half the ER staff is sick, and um, their remaining staff is overwhelmed. You know, just all across the board, um, people with other health problems are at much greater jeopardy when you start to overtax our healthcare system. So, for just you know, just again, a host of reasons, which are are you know, oftentimes interconnected. But the better that we can continue to adjust our lives, um, it, it's not just you know directly benefiting us, but there is a community-wide benefit. Uh, to every time that we choose to act in a, in a more responsible manner. So, Dr. Polsky, again, thank you so much for being with us today. This is incredibly informative, I think, for all of us, I know, and, and of course, for our listeners as well. What should we be looking for? Our listeners are extremely smart, but they, like us, are not experts. What are the stats and the headlines that we should be watching if we care about this and we want to make the best decisions for our families and friends? What insights can you leave us with before we let you go today? Crystal balls have been in a bigger back order uh, than adequate testing supplies. So, uh, you know, trying to kind of project out uh, how things may change over the coming months is probably a, a fool's errand. Um, so your listeners may be smart. I guess the question is uh, how smart am I to even uh, take a stab at, at, at this sort of thing? You know, I, I think from a policy level for, for, for the listeners who have a direct hand in uh, continued reopening process, uh, really thinking about not just the short-term uh, yield for, for certain reopenings, but uh, again, we are getting closer and closer to flu season. Um, we know how hard it is sometimes to reverse once you start to reopen, uh, how realistic is it going to be to close back down. Um, so being very, very measured um, in, um, in, in the steps that are taken. Um, and again, I, I would say that really focus should be on, on schools as a priority right now. Uh, and uh, one of the discussions that we've had, I, I think that the, the metrics that have been proposed for schools are, and this is my personal opinion, misguided. Um, the idea of just looking at, at prevalence rates across county, I, I think that's a ham-handed way of doing things. Uh, if I have, a, as an example, if there, unfortunately in our county we have not had any nursing home outbreaks, um, but if we have a nursing home outbreak, that's going to push our, our percent positivity or prevalence in our county way up, but the, the entire remainder of the community could be relatively unaffected. Um, that what we really need to be looking at is um, more detailed ways of evaluating uh, to see how policies are uh, impacting. And, um, and so, for instance, uh, looking at age-specific cohorts, um, looking at um, 
and having better ways to determine within industries uh, to see whether rates are rising within, say, restaurant sector or people who work in uh, within a school building, uh, all those sorts of things. So my, my hope is that uh, as we um, continue to ramp up our efforts, and you know, we touched before about how um, continued improvements in IT technology are critical for, for many of these things, um, that we don't just rest on what we're doing right now, we continue to be adaptable and uh, you know, just continue to learn. And, and again, um, instead of you know, people uh, you know, throwing stones at each other uh, and blaming for this and blaming for that, uh, you know, uh, coming to more constructive uh, working consensus for as, a, as counties, as communities, uh, how we continue to keep ourselves safer. Hard not to give a complete uh, raise a glass to those last comments about hoping that the public debate and rhetoric and discussion about these issues can can move closer to a positive direction. It's It's been awfully frustrating to see how much of this has turned, in, in my judgment, uh, you know, negative and sort of beside the point. Agree. And it's always a pleasure to have, um, you know, Dr. Polsky with us and to discuss these issues, which are really important and timely, you know, as our discussion has mentioned, something that we're going to be dealing with for um, the months to come. Thank you all for the invitation. Um, so it's always a pleasure and not to, hopefully not to brown this, but I do mean this genuinely, uh, that um, you know, the, the local health departments across the state do really appreciate the working relationship we have with MAKO and with our county partners. Excellent. Dr. Polsky, thanks again. We hope that you, your family, all of your residents down in St. Mary's County stay healthy and well amid this pandemic. We'll go ahead and leave it there today. If you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, the Conduit Street blog. But for Dr. Polsky, for Michael and Natasha, this is Kevin signing off, and we will talk to you soon. Mm -hmm.